to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here once again with Professor Akil Omar today on the Yale campus. Good morning, Akil. Good morning, Andy. And speaking of once again, there's uh, something else that we're doing once again. Yes, we're very happy to welcome back Professor Kermit Roosevelt. Welcome back, Kim, if, if I may. Yeah, thanks so much. Happy to be back. Where does Kim come from? Kim is a nickname. It comes actually from Rudyard Kipling's book, Kim. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we tried to track this down. We think that it was given as a nickname to my great-grandfather, who was the first Kermit, by Seth Bullock, who's the, the famous marshal from the Deadwood TV series, but also a real historical person. Well, I, I think I'm going to be able to try to verify that because we, I happen to know the world's leading expert on Rudyard Kipling. Okay. His name is uh, David Richards, and uh, he's a, a Yale alum. He's also an expert on other things like the secret societies at, uh, or the senior societies uh, at Yale. But he, uh, he had, has the largest collection in the world of Kiplingalia, which he has donated to the uh, Beinecke Library at Yale. And he also has written a bibliography of, uh, of Kipling, and he's the president of the Kipling Society. So I will, uh, I will ask him if he knows anything about that. Yeah, I think I think I actually have talked to him about that. Oh, okay, great. Well, Dave's yeah. a great guy. Okay, so um, last time that that uh, Kim was on, we we talked about some very provocative subjects. Um, some of them related to things in the news, like the sixteen nineteen project, things like that, and of course, uh, all of it related to um, his current book, "The Nation That Never Was." Kim has uh, three, at least three major propositions uh, in this book. And on the, la- the last time, we talked quite a lot about the, uh, the question of the words, all men are created equal, and, all, and not just that, but the role of the Declaration um, in the American ethos, um, the American national character, the ma- American national identity, um, uh, a questionable role, as uh, uh, Kim describes. And uh, then, of course, he has a certain uh, optimistic point of view when we get to the Gettysburg Address. But um, anyway, so Akil took some issue with that, and we're going to revisit that later in the episode. But there's a certain flow to uh, Kim's argument, and one of the things that he says is that the transition from the Articles of, of Confederation to the Constitution... Uh, is treason, uses that word. Of course, this is reminiscent of uh, Michael Klarman's book, The uh, The Founder's Coup, I think, in terms of, of that sort of uh, reasoning. But this is important because later we get to a question of whether or not secession is justified or legal or constitutional. And he notes that the, um, that the South kind of waves the declaration... Uh, aloft as they proclaim their, their secession in various uh, secession conventions and that sort of thing. Um, so it's one thing for the South to wave the declaration. Uh, it's another thing for Kim to wave the declaration um, in, in discussing a Southern secession. And, you know, there's a number of times that he, that he talks about that. Um, so, for example, on page... Uh, 151 of his book, I'm just going to read you a a quick uh, quote here. 
He says, uh, the real heirs of the signers of the Declaration of Independence are the Southern secessionists. Um, Our list of those independence movements inspired the Declaration does not often include them, but the Southern states overwhelmingly invoked it in their secession documents. Okay, fine, that's what I was saying before. Um, And he goes on to say, the Southern states presumably hoped that they were replaying not the revolution with its devastating carnage, but the replacement of the Articles of Confederation by the Constitution, the formation of a union with a different degree of central authority, which might not include all the states. In that hope, they were wrong, but they were right to invoke the Declaration. And then you go on to say, the Southern states joined the Revolution and later the Union to protect some rights they valued, and high on that list was the right to own slaves. They might reasonably have feared that the British would take that right away. Okay. So, um, your comments on that, uh, Kim, do you think that uh, I've properly represented your argument there? Yeah, I, I think you have. I mean, I, I wouldn't change much. If I could try to just re-encapsulate it really quickly, I would say maybe the thing that we're doing as a nation that I'm sort of trying to call attention to and maybe object to is that we're trying to be on different sides of historical moments that are very similar. So in the revolution, we're saying the rebels are the good guys fighting for their rights, and obviously that's what you know we should endorse and emulate. Um, you know, even though these are slaveholding states rebelling against a nation that has partially banned the practice. Um, and then in the Civil War, we're saying the rebels are the bad guys, um, and we're you know they're justifying their secession on the same grounds. They're saying. The government is destructive of its ends, and now we'd like to try a different form of government. Um, And yet, you know, we're trying to identify with the rebels in one case and the national government in the other. And I'm trying to say we can't really do that. Sort of the same thing happens with the transition from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution and with secession. I think we're kind of taking inconsistent positions. So overall, what I'm trying to say is let's be consistent and let's come down on the side of union and the national government and liberty consistently. So, yeah, I mean, you do say that um, a national government that wants to destroy the institution around which your society is built even if it lacks the power to do so directly, might well suggest that a different form would more likely affect your safety and happiness. So the Declaration is on the side of the South. You come right out and say that. What about yeah, the found? I what, do think that. Just, just to finish that paragraph, what about the Founders' Constitution? Not as clear, but the answer again probably is the South. Okay, so now I'm going to let Akil weigh in on some of these things. Uh, so these are very provocative interventions and invitations. I, I think I do disagree in the main, but here's one thing that Kim is saying and that I agree with. We need to think about three secessionist moments in history, and we need to think about them together. The moment of 1776, where 13 united colonies secede jointly and severally from the British Empire, and that's the Declaration of Independence and uh, the war, the American Revolution. And that's a secessionist moment. And I actually think it's 13 separate entities seceding. They're allies, but they're not quite one indivisible thing yet. They're free and independent states, they say, in 
the language of the 1776 Declaration is actually the language that's most significant and most quoted. It's not the all men are created equal stuff. There have been lots of other assertions of first principles in all sorts of other contexts, um, states, locali- colonies, localities, but only the July 4th and July and before it, July 2nd pronouncements of the Continental Congress are actually doing something juridical. They're formally declaring independence. That's why it is a declaration of independence. That's the key thing. And that's a secessionist moment. And Kim wants us to think about it as a secessionist moment. I think he's right to do so. That's the first secessionist moment. Then the second, it's a secessionist moment when nine or more states assert the right to withdraw from the Articles Confederation that are failing. They're seceding from the Articles Confederation in a certain profound respect. And it's not unilateral secession. That I'm going to come back to that. It's very important that actually it's going to be, it's not going to happen unless nine agree, which is not South Carolina's position in uh, December 1860 or early 1861. It's going to be a huge difference. But I, I love Kim, but I think he's basically fundamentally wrong in his um, interpretations. I think he's way too Ackermanian. That's uh, an adjective referring to our mutual friend and teacher, Bruce Ackerman. The second secessionist moment is when states secede and they reunite, but states secede from the Articles Confederation. So that's the second one. And then the third one is 1860-61. So Kim's saying, let's think about all these three together and let's at least try to have some consistent, coherent principles. He's right on all of that. That That's one big thing. Now, when we, once we do that, I'm going to have different answers from Kim on all these. And he's saying, oh, we're kind of inconsistent. I'm saying, no, you're not inconsistent if you say... The American Revolution was good, and the French Revolution sucked. And there are people who say that. The one that I actually, who's very interesting in this regard, is Burke. You see, because you could be a traditionalist and just be opposed to all revolution, you know. And you could be, you know, Thomas Jefferson, and you're in favor of every revolution, the good and the bad. Burke is interesting because Burke basically says the Americans have a point and the French have gone too far, which is very interesting because I would say from the benefit of, with the benefit of hindsight, I think Burke is two for two. He actually sees the American cause and he sees that the, the French are kind of going too far, too fast in kind of crazy way. So I don't think it must needs be the case if you say, well, there are three cases and the plaintiff won the first case and, you know, the defendant won the second and the, the plaintiff won the third. And that's inconsistent. No, sometimes plaintiffs win, sometimes defendants win. And that, that, that doesn't. So sometimes secessions are permissible and lawful and, and legitimate. And sometimes they aren't. And now we have to actually do some law. So let me go through the three. So here's the American Revolution from a legal point of view. But the, the American Revolution is illegal um, from the British perspective. And I say just that, actually, in the words that made us. You know, from the point of view of the British Constitution, Parliament is uh, sovereign, supreme, and it has not agreed to that. And that, by 1776, I would say, is the central pillar of unwritten, evolving British constitutionalism. may not have been true a century before or something. Um, but parliamentary sovereignty, I think, is the key idea. And the Americans are not getting Parliament's approval. Um, so from that point of view, it's it's illegal. But they try to say, here are all the things that the Brits have done that are completely wrong. Uh, the, the, a, a long train of abuses. And damn it, we don't get to vote. And they're uh, imposing all these things 
on us. And damn it, we keep actually trying even to, to tell them our grievances. And this son of a bitch, King Charles. Oh, no, no, I'm getting confused. I'm, uh, George, I'm not that big a fan of Charles, um, the, the current Charles. He's been Charles. watching The um, Crown lately, so that's why. In, no, in part because he actually is an apologist for George III, who in my view was a nitwit. Okay, and here's why he was an idiot. He refused to even listen to the petitions. He wouldn't even allow them to be read to him. He almost literally stoppered his ears and said, doot, doot, doot. He is accurately depicted, mockingly, but brilliantly ridiculed in Hamilton. You know, da, 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 da. You know, he's just, you know, he, he's utterly. So, and in fact, the end of all the grievances, the crowning one is he's, they're not even listening to us. They won't engage us. So I say it's technically illegal from the British point of view, the first secession, but morally justified because there was this long train of abuses and the Brits, in my view, are twits and the Americans are better. And my biggest objection is I do not think that on the slavery issue in 1776, the Brits have the upper moral hand. On the contrary, I say, and this is where 1619 comes in, immediately in 1776, even beginning in 1775, the American Revolution is an anti-slavery revolution in half of America. The first, the world's first Anti, and so this is going to connect to this is all men who created equal stuff and others. The world's first anti-slavery society is founded in Philadelphia in 1775. And in 1776, actually, the Pennsylvania Constitution basically says everyone's equal. And and and, and very soon thereafter, Pennsylvania actually engage, um, uh, begins a process of complete abolition of slavery, not freeing a few slaves, abolishing slavery, although on a timetable. Massachusetts does the same thing immediately uh, with the 1780 Constitution, which results in immediate abolition of slavery. And that's true in New Hampshire. And that's true. Vermont in 1777 says all men are basically uh, free and equal. And that's the world's first, the world's first anti-slavery constitution. And this is going to happen in Rhode Island and in Connecticut. So I think 16 and 1619 doesn't tell you this. 1619 doesn't tell you that immediately upon the American uh, adoption of the um, Declaration of Independence in a whole bunch of states, from a moral point of view, much of America is really showing itself to be vastly superior to the Brits, who are doing nothing like abolishing slavery anywhere, even though they don't enforce slavery itself in Britain, but they have the West Indies and all the rest. And, 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 and they are participating, you know, in grotesque ways all around the world in international slave trade. So I'm a fiercely patriotic American who says in 1776, what we did was illegal. Um, we're not perfect. They're not perfect, the Brits, but we are better than they are. Okay, so that's my take. Then I'm going to talk about now um, 1787 and 1861, but I want to let Kim back in just on 1776 and see how much he he disagrees with that take on 1776. Yeah, so overall, I think I, I agree with the framing. I'm delighted that you agree that these are three secessionist moments. I think they do have to be evaluated 
on their own terms, and you know, we need to be precise about what question we're asking. So is this legal? Is it moral? Those are different questions. We could reach different answers for the different moments. Um, you know, and, and I think that we would. What I'm reacting to is, I think, inconsistent arguments about legality, which you know, I think you, you do find. So a lot of people are surprised to hear that the American Revolution is treason. Um, you know, and then you say treason is sometimes justified, and they were morally justified. I think the argument gets a little bit more complicated when you start asking, under their theory, who's entitled to judge whether this is justified or not? Because their theory is we are entitled to judge. Um, and if you accept that, then I think you also have to say the Southern secessionists are entitled to judge. Um, and your political philosophy tells you they can secede if they want to. But I guess maybe we'll talk about that more later. The only thing that I would say about the Brits compared to the Americans is, I think you're right, and I think it, it should be emphasized that half of America looks good by contrast to what the British are doing then. Half of America looks bad, and if you're talking about slavery in England, so they did have that. There are lots of slaves at the time of the Norman Conquest, and they abolish it. They get rid of slavery in England. They keep it in their colonies, and they could have gotten rid of it in their colonies. They had the power to do that, which is an important difference between, say, Massachusetts and South Carolina. But still, if you're looking at America as a whole, you've got a nation where slavery is prohibited in some parts of it, and then it's permitted and cherished in other parts, and those aren't even colonies. So, I mean, is it worse to have slavery in your colonies, or is it worse to have slavery inside your nation? I'm not sure. I think morally they're both equally reprehensible. But in terms of what it does to the fabric of your society, I think arguably it's sort of hypocritical, it's disingenuous, but you can have a stronger rhetoric about liberty and equality if slavery is invisible and not a big central part of the fabric of your society. So in that way, I feel like American slavery is maybe more corrosive to our ideals than British slavery in the colonies. So just in terms of what you said about Britain getting rid of slavery in England, um, I don't believe that there was abolition in England until 1833. Um, I believe that, that Somerset says that there has to be positive law and there isn't positive law, but that doesn't mean that there couldn't be, that Parliament couldn't the next day, you know, pass a law saying slavery is, is fine, you know, that, because there's no law in the books that says you can't have slavery. Um, sure, Parliament, Parliament could have, and during the Somerset litigation, pro-slavery people asked Parliament to do that, and Parliament refused. So, sure, right, you, you ban slavery, you can change the law to reintroduce slavery, but there was no legal justification for it, and Parliament was asked to justify it and said no. And that connects to the my concession that the American revolutionaries do not have law on their side because the ultimate law is parliamentary sovereignty. Parliament can do whatever it wants. It can have slavery or not have slavery. It just has chosen not to, evidently, by, by, by not having a slave code for England. Back to just 1776, just for a bit more, and then we can move forward. My claim is that the American Revolution is, and we're going to, we'll come back to this maybe, Andy, at the end, we're going to be circling back to all men are created equal. One thing I wanted, th this turns out to be hugely important for me and thinking about Kim's work has crystallized it for me. So, so even if I don't agree with Kim, he's helped me 
figure out what my own position is on really important things in American history. So, so even if he and I disagree on things, wow, very few scholars actually get other scholars to, to really rethink big questions. So here to me is one really key take home point. The Declaration of Independence is not something that's just about Thomas Jefferson, who is hypocritical and a slaveholder. I believe the Declaration of Independence, America's not an it, it's a they, and even the Declaration of Independence, forget actually, they actually declare our independence two days earlier, and John Adams is the key, is a key figure in that, but even the Declaration, even the, the drafting committee is Benjamin Franklin from Philadelphia, from Pennsylvania, Quaker, um, um, stronghold, anti-slavery, John Adams from Massachusetts, Puritan, very anti-slavery. So America isn't an it, it's a they. The Declaration of Independence actually has multiple fathers, multiple authors, and we really make a mistake, I think, when we see it too much through the eyes of, of Thomas Jefferson. And I'm not a Jefferson fan anymore, and I was when, when I was young. So here's, though, the key fact that 1619 doesn't see at all that for the first time in the modern world, the modern world, we are seeing actually abolitions and not by one king who doesn't in France in 1500 and then it actually doesn't take in France because France reintroduces slavery and then they get rid of it in the French Revolution and then Napoleon brings it back. Okay, there's not an enduring end to slavery, abolition in most of Europe. We talked about that last week, um, time. There's slavery in the Iberian Peninsula, and then there's slavery in, in Central Europe. That's why we call them Slavs, because they're, they're slaves. So, um, and even if there are a few regimes that have gotten rid of it, they've done it by some royal decree or something. What you are seeing immediately, literally beginning in July 1776, in Kim's hometown of Pennsylvania, is a state constitutional convention that actually says everyone's born free and equal. And they don't mean it the way Thomas Jefferson does. They mean it in a different way. And they're going to abolish slavery and do so democratically. And the world had never seen anything like that. And damn it. Wow. And okay. And that's what 1619 doesn't see. And I don't think that's what Kim says. And I'm saying it's not just Pennsylvania. It's Vermont the next year. 1777, Massachusetts in 1780, and then 83, it's New Hampshire, it's Rhode Island, it's Connecticut. Wow, that's, it's only half of America, but there's nothing like this in the world. And it's precipitated by the American Revolution and some of the idealism of the American Revolution, because at its best, at our worst, South Carolina, it's disgusting, okay? Although I do think the West Indies are West Indies under uh, Brits are even worse than South Carolina, and I know the um, the Brits are doing beastly things in the Indian subcontinent. Okay, what I am saying is lots of the world, lots of beastly things, but now, really, for the first time in the world, we have an um, just grassroots democratic, um, amazing um, abolitionist movements, uh, not not in one little city, but across half of America. And that's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's a, it's a good start. And that's what 1619 doesn't see at all.
Lord Dunmore, they talk about Lord Dunmore's proclamation. He's not proposing abolition at all. He's going to try to free some slaves, you know, who are going to help his side. And the Americans are offering, you know, freedom to other slaves to help their side. That's, that's not exciting to me. What's exciting to me is abolition. Now it's true that abolition is occurring in places where there aren't, you know, 50% slaves, but it's occurring in places where there are 20% slaves. And, and that's really substantial. And the reason is, because some white people, a lot of white people, are actually, they have moral principles. And they actually realize that slavery is wrong. And if they are going to be complaining about wrongs done to them by the Brits, they have to get straight with God and with themselves and actually try to purify. And those are Puritans in Boston. That's actually who they are. Beginning with James Otis, that's chapter one of the words that made us. He's actually talking about slavery, according to John Adams. And even if he's not, he definitely is saying slavery is wrong in the first major pamphlet against the Stamp Act in 1764. And he's saying slavery is wrong and we're being hypocritical. So good for him. And it's not just Puritans in Boston. It's Quakers in Kim's hometown of Philadelphia. So we'll talk now about 1787 as the secessionist movement, but I want to say it is illegal. That's why they are pledging their lives, their fortune, their sacred honor. If if they're caught, they're going to be hanged. That's why Benjamin Franklin says we must surely, at least apocryphally, we must surely hang together. Otherwise, we will, you know, hang separately. And he means by the neck until they're dead. This is treason. Of course, it's treason. And they and and George Washington knows that that from the legal from the British point of view, of course, this is treason. And Kim said one other thing. Well, who's to judge now from a moral point of view? And he says, in the first instance, every man for himself, because that's all there is. God doesn't quite directly, you know, speak to us in, in a booming voice. In the end, I think their view is, oh, that's what war in part is all about. It's an appeal to heaven. And the Lord will, you know, actually, you know, decide. And 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 maybe if the Lord is just, the more just side will prevail, you know, uh, let the best man win or something. Initially, who else is there other than your own conscience? So you're going to have to decide now that that's true of our conscience too. We get to judge them about whether their cause was just or not, where they were admirable. Were they more admirable in this respect? Were they uh, than the, than their adversaries? Were they less ad- admirable in this other respect? And what I'm I'm proud of Kim for doing is saying we we need to f- to look all this in the eye and make not just technical legal judgments about things, but ultimately moral assessments, because they go in part to who we are as a nation, who we have been and who we want to be as as a nation. That's the first secessionist movement, Kim, you know, and I think our audience has gotten a little bit of a sense of your take and my take about 1776. Okay, so why don't we move on to 1787, unless Kim wants to comment on, on that. I think we'll probably circle back to it later on the all men is created equal stuff. Well, so like the only thing I would say about that, I think, is the idea that you have to be the judge, you make your appeal to heaven. I'm not saying that's a bad political philosophy, but I am saying that's not a great political philosophy for a nation to try to carry forward and say it's dedicated to. Because the last time I saw anyone flying the appeal to heaven flag, it was at the Capitol on January 6th. Right. So that's a dangerous ideology. Um, And I think it's really amazing that like Lincoln 
at Gettysburg says he's invoking the Declaration of Independence, says we're engaged in a war to see whether a nation conceived and dedicated as our nation is to the founding principles that we're dedicated to can long endure. And I think he's spot on there because we're dedicated to the principle of revolution. And if you're dedicated to the principle of revolution, your nation will not long endure. And that's why he has to try to reinterpret it. But we haven't fully gotten there. Right? And to fully get there, I think we need to say we are the union in the Civil War, not we are the sons of liberty. Well, he, so doesn't quite final, say, he doesn't quite say we're well, dedicated to the proposition of revolution. He says, and this is where your interpretation of the, of the declaration comes into play, he says we're dedicated right. to the proposition that all men are created equal. So what does all men yeah, are exactly. created equal he's, mean? He's, taking, okay, and he's that's, taking revolution and secession out of the Declaration of Independence. So we'll, 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 we'll obviously, you know, we're going to talk about secession in 1787-88, but let me just say if we're – Talking about how radical and possibly destabilizing some of these ideas are, appeals to heaven. I think if we're being uh, historians and analysts, we probably have to talk just very, very briefly, at least, about uh, Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, um, because Protestantism has a certain sort of radical tendency that each person has his own soul, is responsible you know, for his own soul, has to, in the end, read scripture for himself or find it a meaning. And and that was not exactly a stable thought in the middle and of, of Europe in the 1500s and 1600s. It led to a lot of warfare, in fact. If people are going to decide for themselves what the Bible really means, what the Lord really re- requires, but the Americans are, in, in the main, fierce Protestants, dissident Protestants, you know, many of them. The Virginians are interested in making money. The South Carolinians are interested in making money. The folks in Massachusetts, you know, are trying, they're trying to create God's kingdom on earth. And that spirit of purifying themselves is going, will lead to abolition in the 1770s and 80s in certain places. So yeah, it's a very radical idea that you have to judge for yourself certain things. Very radical, very destabilizing. I do think um, there's a certain, you know, I don't know if it's a nihilism, but a moral relativism here. If you just just can say, well, any revolution can be justified because you can just say, you know, we don't we don't agree with the principles that this government is founded on. Therefore, we're going to revolt, and that's it. At least the Declaration of Independence, and it's true, the secessionist. Uh, you know, declarations tried to mimic the Declaration of Independence themselves with their their own uh, tales of woe, but they they don't they don't ring true, and they certainly don't ring true in the sense of being unrepresented. I think, well, I think this notion that that the that the colonists didn't get to vote and par- and Parliament is supreme is a lot different from anything that the secessionists had to say. So, so I'm I'm going to come back to that you know in the 1860s, but to, so but there. Two other constraints, uh, apart from, well, you know, um, this is what God tells me. Well, first, just as a, as a very practical matter, if you don't succeed militarily, you're dead. Okay. And that's, that's going to cause you to be a little careful before you, you like, and the declaration says like people don't lightly do this in, in, in general. The declaration of independence says that. And the second point is I would say, I get to judge you, too, from a moral point of view. You better be morally right. Otherwise, I'm going to condemn you, you know, throughout his, you know, the ages. And I'm going to condemn the Jefferson Davises of the world, you see, because theirs is a pro-slavery secession. And they're open and avowed about it. And that's actually not true, in my view, of 1776. You know, they, they're not proudly saying this is for slavery. And in fact, 
They couldn't because the colonies in the North said, no, we don't believe that at all. We, in fact, believe the exact opposite of that. But but anyway, maybe we can talk now about 1787 and the secession and that. Yeah, let, let's move on to that. But I'd just like to, to just say one statement here, which is I think that what's come out of this discussion is that Kim is right to point at all, at the phrase, all men is created equal, as being, as you have to understand what that meant in order to understand whether the declaration is strictly a political philosophy of uh, separation of peoples, or whether it's also an expression of, for at least some, or uh, probably many, of the colonists, um, and also an expression of a moral value. So that, that because the, your argument really turns on that in large part. So um, anyway, I just think let's keep that in mind. You know, and for, and for I'm going to come back to, uh, because of Kim, I read uh, since our last conversation, the piece that he directed me to, uh, us all to by pa- the great, late, great Pauline Mayer, a friend of mine on um, the strange history of all men are created equal. And I'm going to read him, you know, one passage, because I think he was right in admitting that he's going way beyond Pauline. And, and sort of. Now, 1787 is an act of secession from the Articles of Confederation, because the Articles actually say, oh, this is a perpetual union, and it can't be changed unless all 13 states agree, and they have to agree in their state legislatures. And until all 13 states agree, you know, these are the rules, state legislatures. And the Constitution comes along and says, any nine states are going to agree to break away, form this new regime. And it's actually not nine state legislatures, it's nine state conventions. Now, I, I think this is very important as a distinction. It's not unilateral secession. It's mass secession from the Articles Confederation. And that mass secession actually is very important and why it's going to be different from 1861 in some really important res- respects. No state is saying in, 18, in 1787, we're going to just walk away on our own. We're going to walk away if and only if a bunch of our sister states, a super majority, you know, the overwhelming mass of other states agree with us that the existing regime isn't working. And we're going to do it precisely. Uh, we're going to walk away. We're going to secede precisely in order to better accomplish the unionist purposes of our, our initial thing. We actually are seceding in order to reunite and everyone is welcome. And legally, we're permitted to do this because each of us is sovereign. We were free and independent states in 1776. We are still each of us free and independent states under the Articles Confederation, which is a mere league, a treaty. We're like the modern day EU or NATO, and we're allowed to Brexit if we want, but we actually aren't going to, and legally our additional justification is each state has promised to do certain things, and actually truthfully none of us has has kept um, the the deal under the Articles Confederation, like standard contract law 101, if if you don't, you know, do your end of the deal, I don't have to do my end of the deal. If I promise to paint your house and you promise to pay me $10,000, and I don't paint your house, maybe you just don't have to pay me $10,000. That's the, called the self-help uh, remedy of rescission. Now, the logic of that would be each state could walk away if it wanted, but they don't do that. In 1787, they're much more respectful of the ideas of union. They say, we're only going to walk away if at least eight others agree, nine or more. And, and Kim is right 
to focus on this as a, a secessionist moment. And we miss all of that, most Americans, because they don't even know that when George Washington takes his oath of office as first pre- the president of the United States, there are only 11 states in USA 2.0. Rhode Island hasn't said yes. North Carolina uh, hasn't said yes. Now, because in the end, all 13 reunite and pretty quickly after George Washington, North Carolina says yes and Rhode Island says yes. We kind of miss the fact that there was this major secessionist. uh, Some of us miss um, ordinary people miss uh, the fact that there was this major secessionist moment called the Constitution of the United States. Now, I've just given you the legal justification for it from my point of view. There was a, a, a breach of the contract and there were 13 separate contracting parties and any one of them could have walked away. But in fact, they didn't do that. It was not a unilateral secession, but a multilateral secession. And it was a secession designed to actually redeem the main purposes of the original confederation. So there was a certain fidelity to the confederation project, even as there was a kind of secessionism going on. I'm going to say all that's going to be different from 1861, and also it's no longer confederation anymore. But I want to take Kim's, I want to take the bait. Kim is saying, let's think about these three cases or controversies and how we resolve each one legally and morally. Now, Kim, you, you, in, all, in fairness to you, you do present the treaty argument as one of the, the two, two arguments, although you kind of you know, very quickly move on to the other argument because it has, I think, more to do with your, your overall thesis. But you don't back off the notion that it's treason. Um, so, so Akil... Is this treason or isn't it? No, because actually the, the ultimate sovereignty is to your um, your, your state. And so the, the United States is merely a, a league, a treaty, a confederation. It, it's merely the EU. And, and I don't think we'd say today Brexit was treason to Europe. I think we'd say your nation state, your Westphalian nation state is Britain. I'd say it's ill-advised. Okay, so... Uh, so. Very, oh, I think they may, some of them may be regretting it today, that, um, but but that's that, that's different than treason. Okay, so Kim, is it is it treason? You say, I think you say is, in the book is it Brexit is. Is Brexit treason? So is Brexit treason? That depends on the no, governing charter of the is, EU. Not Brexit. Is, is the Constitution yeah. treason? The Constitution. Well, so what I'm relying on there, and the reason that I was invoking Brexit and exactly what the EU Charter says, is the Articles of Confederation say perpetual, right? And they say any amendment requires unanimous consent. So you're breaking the Articles of Confederation, right? You're violating the existing legal order. Now, is that treason? I don't know. Maybe that depends on whether there's a sovereign to whom you owe allegiance. And Congress under the Articles of Confederation is not necessarily that kind of sovereign, because as Akil says, it is more of a confederation. Um, But what I'm saying is it's a change in the governing legal structure that is inconsistent with the rules that that structure sets out. It does not follow the change, the procedures for change that are set out. And and just to be just so we're really clear, it's not that it's more of a confederation. It is a confederation full stop. You know, no ifs, ands or buts, period, as as uh, Senator Biden once said, period. That's what it is. That's why they're the Articles of Confederation. And that's why Article two actually says each state retains its sovereignty freedom and independence. So I think treason is maybe just a, if, if Kim said, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, might be a, a rhetorical exuberance of a certain sort. But here's what he is saying. is He's asking, is it legal? And I'm saying it's legal for the 
for this for this reason because there were two things that were yoked in article 13 of the articles the union will be perpetual but that's in the same sentence as and it everyone will inviolably observe everything in it and if actually people aren't in keeping their end of the bargain then actually because these two promises are yoked conditions that um that if you don't if i don't paint the fence you don't have to pay me so yeah and i think it you know, it's important because Kim uses this to, number one, justify Southern succession, secession, and he also uses it to justify the what he considers to be sort of an extra-constitutional ratification of the 14th Amendment. Right, so, so I'm going to – we'll come back right, to 1861. Right. I'm no, going to say the Constitution isn't a confederation and unilateral secession isn't like multilateral and there wasn't really a breach. Um, and from a moral point of view, I hate the, the South and so I will judge them. But okay. we're playing Kim's game and by that I don't mean to demean. I'm saying I, he's inviting us – you know, there, there are games worth playing, you know, uh, chess. Um, and by the way, Kim is an, an amazing chess master. I'm accepting his invitation – for serious Americans to look at these three moments, and we have to have theories about them. We do. Yes, and then, like, we should add in 1866, too, because I, I hope that we Okay, so that. Uh, we'll do yes. 1861, and then, yes, the 14th Amendment. Great. Okay, so let's move on, to, then, to, to uh, 1861. And, um, you know, again, I read you some of your, your comments about that, and uh, bottom line here is you say Southern secession was justified by these two earlier secessions. I mean, yeah, well, so, uh, what, <laughs> so. Okay, yeah. So what I say is, in terms of legality under the Constitution, um, you know, you could say, look, the Constitution doesn't say it's perpetual. Um, I'm probably, I think I would waive the legality argument in the way that the Tennessee secession letter does. So people say, the Southern secessionists say, all of the same things that Akil said to justify the replacement of the Articles by the Constitution, right? They say, you know, this is a compact and the terms weren't observed and it's fallen apart on its own. But even if you don't accept that, and I think the argument is close, you know, but I think maybe Akil does have the better of that argument in terms of legality of unilateral secession. I don't know. Um, I think the argument of the Declaration very clearly supports the secessionists. So set aside the question of whether this is legal under the existing framework. Does the political theory of the declaration justify Southern secession? I think the answer to that is yes. So my thought is the following. Legally, it's a slam dunk that is utterly illegal. And the easiest, you know, ways of all of it, say like, what part of supreme law of the land do you not understand? That's a textual point. But just as an historical point, not one Federalist, for the entire year when the Constitution was being debated in the ratification process, no one ever, not once, said, hey, money back guarantee, give it a try. If you don't like it, you can leave. And on the contrary, again and again and again, they say this is a different sort of document. It's a Constitution and not a confederation. It's not a league. It's not a treaty. It's like actually state constitutions. And Boston doesn't have a unilateral right to leave Massachusetts, and Charleston doesn't have a unilateral right to leave South Carolina. This is a different thing. It's no longer a confederation, league, treaty, NATO, EU-like thing. It's a corporate merger of a certain sort. It creates an indivisible constitution. The word sovereign 
no longer appears, and that's a very pointed omission. It was in the Articles of Confederation, and everyone notices it. Everyone in our audience, you know, will know that if you, at a certain point, look into someone's eyes and you say, I love you, and they do not say, I love you back, you, that actually is pretty significant. The article said states are sovereign, and the Constitution didn't, and everyone understood what that means. To me, it's not... Oh, Akilah may have the better of this argument. This is, I'm passionate about this. I'm with Lincoln. This is as easy a legal, legally an argument as I think there, there is based on text, based on history, and based on that main structural point that once you're in, you have to be in because if you could withdraw, then you could make an alliance the next day with um, some foreign monarchy. And the day after that, European mercenaries would be in the heartland of America and threatening the rest of us. If South Carolina tomorrow could secede lawfully, just in it gets to decide for itself, then the day after that, it could make a treaty with Putin. And the day after that, there would be Russians in the Carolinas, which is not where you want them, because the whole project is we are going to unite indivisibly. That's the, and the words appear in the Federalist 11 and they're mentioned in the Federalist 5 and in many, many other places, precisely so that we'll all invest in guns in Charleston Harbor facing out toward our enemies. But that's precise. And we, but we couldn't do any of that if at any moment the people in that locality could swivel those guns around and point them into the bellies of the rest of us. So from a legal point of view, oh my God, it's a slam dunk. Now the moral point of view, and the significance of the Declaration of Independence, I'm going to come back to in round two, but I want to give Kim a chance to jump in just on the purely legal, what the Constitution says, as opposed to how to think about the Declaration and our revolutionary tradition. So I think those are good arguments that an indissoluble union is better. I feel like for it to be a slam dunk, maybe the Constitution should have said this is indissoluble, this is perpetual, maybe it should have said what the Articles actually said. Um, and then even if you have that sort of language, what do you make of the, this agreement falls apart because it has been violated? Okay, so I'll come back to that in just a minute. It's a little, you're making a good point. So why didn't they say perpetual? And my answer is, because it looks a little awkward, given that the article said so, and it didn't quite mean that. The key to me is, you know, what kind of instrument is it? My view is, if it's a compact, if it's a contract, a confederation, then material breach actually absolves each contracting partner. But Blackstone had said, and this was actually cited in the Federalist Papers and at Philadelphia, the nature of a constitution has always been understood to be a different thing. There are no compacting parties anymore. They don't get to decide anything. So they, they're, they're, they, you don't get to decide material breach anymore because you no longer exist as a compacting party. It's a corporate merger and not a partnership. So it matters a lot what kind of legal instrument it is. Perhaps the the process of the ratification also, I think, has something to do with it. First of all, they vote on it. And then what happens during, in the ratification conventions you know, particularly, I know you like to tell the story about New York, Akio. Yes. In terms of yes. whether or not um, so, people understood that this so was... So here, here, thank you for the invitation, Andy. So this is really dramatic. The, the eyes of the world are on New York at a certain moment, and here's why. In the same way that we all were wondering a few weeks ago, like, 
does Kevin McCarthy have the votes or not? There's one round, another, or uh, five, six years ago, were we going to have a nuclear accord with the Iranians or not? Then, uh, you know, there, there, there are these moments where there's just a lot of drama. Are they going to be able to, to walk away with some sort of resolution or not? Here's the story of July 1788. Ten states have ratified the Constitution. It will go into effect by its own terms among those ten. It does not purport to bind any state that doesn't ratify, because it can't, because each state is sovereign. Even if it were unanimously adopted, unanimously, every single American outside Rhode Island, they can't tell Rhode Island what to do, because Rhode Island is a separate sovereign entity. I'm going to use a phrase that Kim will, will smile at, Trinidad and Tobago, just because there's um, in conflicts of law, even tiny little regimes have, you know, a, a certain juridical status or something, Liechtenstein. Uh, but, but, but anyway, okay, so 10 states have said yes, and the Constitution will go into effect. But as a practical matter, it will fail if New York says no. Because how's that going to work if there's no geographic contiguity, if um, America doesn't have the Hudson River and the great deep water ports of New York City? Now, on the one hand, New York doesn't want to go it alone or league up with pathetic Rhode Island. So, you know, it kind of wants to get to yes. And on the other hand, the, the Federalists really, you know, can't make it work without New York. So at the convention, the no votes at the beginning have an overwhelming majority. But that was these people leaning no had been elected at a time before that 10 states had ratified. And now it's totally different because because it's one thing to vote no if the, th- the project is going to fail. It's another thing to vote no if it's going to go into effect. And, and now New Jersey is in on one side and Connecticut is in on the other. And, and New Jersey and Connecticut don't love New York because New York has screwed them over in all sorts of ways. And now it's a little more dangerous to be. So there are dangers to New York being out. There are dangers to the union, uh, you know, of, of of not having New York in, in the thing. So now there are the makings of a deal. You know, here's what the anti-federalists proposed. We will vote yes on the condition that there be a Bill of Rights proposed by the first Congress within a year or two. And if there's not, then we want to reserve the rights to withdraw. Now, if there had been a unil- an idea of secession, The Federalists would say, hell, you can leave any time for any reason, you know, so of course you can leave within two years if there's no Bill of Rights. But instead, the New Yorkers, at the risk of losing everything, the New York Federalists, led by Alexander Hamilton, the risk of losing everything, and the eyes of the world are all watching, they read a letter from Thomas, from um, James Madison. Here's what the letter says. Ratification, this is a direct quote, ratification must be in toto and forever. That is how all the other states have ratified this document. And at the risk of losing everything, the Federalists say, in or out, all deals final. And the Constitu- and everyone around the country reproduces the de- these debates in their newspapers, including in South Carolina um, and Virginia. And at the end, the Constitution wins by a single vote. And, and no one knew where the votes were in the room. This is like the, the Kevin McCarthy thing. So at the risk of losing everything, the Federal said, I'm sorry, but this is the deal. Now, here's what they do say. If you vote yes, we are assuring you informally, human to human, we promise we'll work for a Bill of Rights. It just can't be a legal condition because because the instrument doesn't permit that. You know, once you're in, you will have to be in. But trust us, we agree with you that they, there are flaws and we'll work to fix them. And they did. 
And that's how America actually came together. And the South does none of these things in the 1860s. I hate them. They don't believe in uh, discourse or democracy. They're brutal people. They're evil people. This is what I actually do believe in. When we have to talk about 1861, they have no plausible legal or, in my view, moral analogy to 1776 or 1787. So that, that's what I'm going to try to defend, you know. Um, but, but on the legal point, I just want to say, oh my goodness, they have no, no real leg to stand on by analogy to 1787 because we now have a con- an indivisible constitution rather than a mere confederation treaty. Okay. Kim, your response? Or is that a mic drop? <laughs> uh, well, I, I found that very impressive. I mean, I, I always find a kill impressive. Um, so, I, you know, I do think there are differences, um, obviously. And the viability of the understanding of the Constitution, the compact theory of the Constitution, um, I think it's wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, what... I would say about that is, you know, it's a theory that has had substantial support. It's not a, like, laugh-out-of-court theory, the idea that the Constitution is, in fact, a compact. Um, Obviously, people, like, assert it when it's convenient for them. Right. Um, The southern states, sort of in that vein, are not the first secessionists, right? New England considers seceding Mm -hmm. earlier. Right, Right. Um, although it's less than 100% clear with, um, um, in... uh, Hartford. uh, the Hartford Convention, thank you, Andy, that they were proposing unilateral secession as opposed to, you know, let's just uh, part as friends and we'll, we'll come up with rules of dissolution that we can all agree to. Unilateral secession is very peremptory because it's very disrespectful of everyone else. Hartford Convention doesn't get that far, doesn't actually seriously propose things. They're critics actually accuse them of that precisely to discredit them. But but I do think Kim is right that people like Timothy Pickering and others were seriously talking about this. But the, on the key question of unilateral secession, it never got that far. We did the legal stuff about 1861. And remember, South Carolina just says we can unilaterally secede. We don't give a damn even what you know the Virginians think. And in fact, when Lincoln takes his oath of office, the Upper South hasn't seceded. There are only seven. South Carolina didn't wait for anyone else. It just said in December 1860, and nothing had happened, except they lost an election, fair and square, that, that we're out. I believe it's morally significant. Here are the key moral facts, because since I think they have not a legal leg to stand on, in the end, they're going to have to persuade me and uh, each of our audience, each of our audience members has to decide for herself whether they have a kind of a morally justified cause by analogy to 1776. They say, no, not remotely, and here's why. There's a reason that there is, they, they came up with little declarations of independence, but there's nothing like this July 4th document with any, you know, plausible rhetorical power. Because the declaration said, for 15 years, this is what you guys have been doing to us, and we keep actually objecting and you don't and you don't let us vote and you don't even hear us you you don't even listen you won't even hear our petitions and you're sending troops to kill us and and doing all these horrible things there 30,000 troops have been sent over mercenaries to to slit our throats so i find forget this the two paragraphs that everyone today has memorized about uh, created equal and consent of the governed and and all the rest and and altering and abolish government there's a list 
of wrongs, a bill of particulars, an indictment of a certain sort of King George III and his pals in Parliament. Here are all the horrible things they have done to us, and we've begged them to actually engage us. We've petitioned and petitioned and petitioned, and they, they're not even listening to us, and they're using force against us in all these ways, and we don't get to vote. None of that is true of Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis. I'm going to tell you why I hate them, because I do. Because their entire life is built on slavery, which is all about brutalizing other people, and they become bad human beings. They don't give a damn what other people think. You know, Charles Sumner gives a speech against slavery, and they bash his head in, and the, and the, and lots of people in the South say, good for you. Okay? The They're not... Canes. <laughs> yes. They're not interested in discourse or actually democracy or engagement, and their big idea is... Slavery is a good thing. And we want it, you know, more and more and more and everywhere. And that's not 1776 at all, especially now you see why it's relevant that I challenge the 1619 account of what the American Revolution was, was really about. They have nothing of the Quaker in them, nothing of the Puritan in them. So from a moral point of view, they are not able to come up with a compelling statement justifying basically taking up arms against their fellow Americans, which all they did was win an election fair and square. Okay. Well, so, um, so you say there's no moral justification, um, but I think Kim's point here might be, and I'll let Kim make his own point, but, but to some degree, you know, I think his, what I read in his uh, account of the declaration is that basically they have a set of of things that are important to them, and if those things are not being uh, addressed by the current government, that's justification enough. And right, so and says they, every eight year old, you know, tyrannical eight year old. So says the highwaymen. You, you know, I'm not saying just, that this is a, a justifiable that, that this is a good way to live. That, but if you're if you're making a, a revolutionary appeal, a moral appeal, you're going to have to persuade history, persuade me and each other person that what you did has some um, moral justification. Uh, the Declaration of Independence of July 4th is trying to make a case to the world, let facts be submitted to a candid world. When in the course of human events, when people we're, we we want to explain ourselves to the, the enlightened world, to the French philosophers and other folks. And I think folks since 1861 absolutely failed to come up with any um, statement of, of comparable persuasiveness. There's a reason why. Now, there, there are 13 of them, and they, there are these documents that some of them came up with, but there's a reason why no one talks about them, because they're, they're, they're laughable. They're, they're, from especially today's point of view, ridiculous if you believe the following just very simple proposition, that slavery is wrong, and that slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. This is a direct quote from Lincoln. And then he finally further says, I do not believe there has never been a time that I did not so um, think and, and feel because this is a, it's feeling for him and not just purely intellectual because given in the end, they are open and avowed that their big beef is about slavery. And, and, and July 4th, isn't uh, 1760. Isn't that given that that they're admitting, yes, that's what it's about. Okay. Um, because 
property, because actually slavery is a positive social good, because actually, you know, um, we, we think this is actually a superior way of life. That's why we're seceding. And, and we don't give a damn if you agree with us or not. We're not going to use free speech. We're not going to use our, 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 our ballots because this is the first time we've lost, you know, an election. In fact, Lincoln hasn't even done anything yet. We're not even going to give him a chance. Um, um, we can't point to a law. They, they're not able to point to a long train of abuses in this Lockean vein. So that's why I think it's rhetorically interesting and provocative of, of Kim to sort of say, gee, isn't this just like um, 1776? But I say, actually, legally, it's legally it is like 1776 because it's both of them are illegal, but one is morally justified and one not at all. Do you think that does damage to your thesis, or do you think that it that it is kind of a besides the point? I guess I would say it's sort of besides the point. So the three levels that I'm looking at are the legality. So under the Constitution, is this legal? And I'm willing to say it's not legal. So I'll, I'll give a kill that. Then moral. And I'm willing on the other side to say 1776 is not legal. And so that's a similarity. And, and so on that, right. Tim is saying, let's look at them both. And, and I say they're both illegal. From, from the point of view of the pre-existing legal central regime. Right. So then morality. So in terms of morality, the Southern secessionists in 1861, they're terrible, right? I hate them too. Those are bad people. They lost the war. They lost their case to history. We justly look down on them. I mean, we should. Not everyone does, I think. But we should. Um, and Kim, this is amazing like agreement. moral standards. And by the way, Kim, you and I are unusual in this maybe you know maybe your generation a little bit more jack, jack kennedy would never have said that the democratic party of my youth would never say anything like that because it's politically unpopular and you know so so and it's awkward to say that so much of america was genuinely evil but but i that's why kim's book is saying we have to look that in the eye and not pretend that that wasn't there so that's another virtue of the book is Kim wants us to have a serious moral reckoning, you know, with this part of America that needs to be condemned. And it, which American politics, did Barack Obama ever say that? No, you wouldn't because you just piss a lot of people off politically and lose a lot of votes. So, but that's a similarity, Kim, you and I have, because we're not running for anything. Right. And then here's the difference, though, sort of in terms of the third level, I would say is like political philosophy. And then you ask, are they justified by the philosophy of the Declaration in doing what they're doing? And what they say, and you know what I sort of agree with, is, look, we thought we were getting a certain deal when we signed up. We joined the union, we got a constitution, and we got to look at that constitution to see what they got. Right? I think they got a lot more than they should have. Mm -hmm. But they got a pretty good pro-slavery deal in the constitution. Yes. Yes. And they're like, now the terms are changing. Correct. Anti-slavery forces have captured the national government, which we never thought would happen. Correct. The Republican Party wants to end slavery. And Correct. Lincoln says, I don't have the power, I don't have the intention, but they're trying to do it. Like, they've got this long-term cordon of freedom you're, you're strategy. Right. You're right. And they are committed to destroying the institution that our way of life is based on. Of course, it's a totally reasonable thing to say. A different form of government would better affect our happiness. Right? But here's now my point on the other side. I, okay, you, you you made a contract. 
you thought the price you you bought something because you thought the price was going to go up and and now it's going down but 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 you know you bought it you know or you sold it because you thought the price was going to you know go one way and you know uh, and and now it's gone the other way you shorted the stock that's the deal you know and if you don't like it you the deal was we're one nation and not each state so if you want to change the terms you got to persuade the rest of us and um, right, and but that's not what the declaration says. Well, but hold on, Kim. I mean, I, I think there's a point where where you get to absurdity. I mean, because because the basically what what's happening is that okay, we agree to elections. Okay, no, you can't say they didn't understand there was going to be elections. Okay, and oh, now we've lost an election. Okay, so that means we have to withdraw because yes. we don't like the results of the election, and that's exactly what happens. Okay, the, yes, the, the reason for happens. their for their secession is the election of Abraham Lincoln. So, who doesn't get one popular vote in the South? So, but that's not a. There's a point at which, you know, it's it's absurd. I mean, because because then that means they didn't really agree. In the first place, because there was never any it possibility that, that they would win every election forever. It, because if that were the case, then you would ne- then the, those aren't elections. So well, that's why a nation dedicated to the principle of revolution cannot long endure, because you've said if you feel that your rights are being violated, you can take your ball and go home. And that's what the Declaration says. That's why it's absurd to say that the nation is dedicated to the to, to the principle of revolution. That it's actually yes. dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, and that doesn't. That's only why it's mean absurd to take the Declaration of Independence as our founding document because it's about revolution. No, it's about morally justified revolution, and that's why it gives all the reasons why, even if this is illegal in in July 1776, it's morally justified. And Lincoln says there is a revolutionary principle. He doesn't deny it, but he says, oh, it better be morally justified. And you haven't made that case. So I think you could have a nation dedicated to the proposition that some revolutions are morally justified. But what I'm saying is 1861 is not such a thing. It it was not uh, what South Carolina did was not remotely morally justified. They were never able in the moment or later to submit facts to a candid world that had anything close to the persuasive uh, power of the the, um, list of grievances that the American revolutionaries, and not just Jefferson, because this is this is lots of other Americans too, had, were able to to put together, and culminating with, they're sending over people to kill us uh, and our children, and they're not even listening to us. Yeah, I think also you can read into the, the 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 need for a moral justification and the effort to justify this, you know, the facts by presenting them to a not to justify the facts, but to justify the reasons, to present them to to the world, you can read in that a certain moral integrity, and you can read it, and and you can also read a certain. Uh, you know, they don't talk about democracy, okay, for the reasons that you know that Akil has pointed out. They want the support of France, you know, and that sort of thing. But the fact that they are unrepresented in Parliament is, you know, underlies the everything in the, in the Declaration as well. Um, 
So, you know, that you, you won't listen to it. We have no recourse. You know, you don't listen to us. We don't vote. You know, you, here are the bad things you do. So there is a certain democratic ethos going on there, you know, at, at some level as well. So that's why, you know, your, your presentation of the declaration as a purely political philosophical document and not one that, that has a moral uh, component to it, and therefore all men are created equal, has to not have a moral component because this is not a moral document, not an immoral document, but it's a, you know, sort of non-moral document. Um, that's why I think that that fails ultimately, especially when we, but anyway, let's, let's move on to the, uh, to the 14th amendment, because that's important to your thesis as well. And again, I think we need to underline, we need to remind ourselves of what's going on here in this book, which is Kim's trying to give us a, a point of focus um, as a nation that we can, you know, he, he is patriotic and he believes in American pride. He just feels that that pride is perhaps misdirected when we point it back at the Declaration. Instead, he points to Reconstruction. Now, the, he's got a problem because he says that Reconstruction itself is a little, is, is questionable. Okay, in terms of the 14th Amendment, that it actually is another example of declaration style revolution. That it's not that, you know, and because you you take issue with the ratification process, correct? Um, Yeah, I mean, what I really take issue with is the destruction of the governments of the southern states, 10 of the former Confederate states. That's that's what I think is the most questionable. Um, But the thing that I'm trying to say about Reconstruction is really that I think it's based on different principles from the Declaration, right? It's not based on consent of the governed. It's not based on separation and a right of self-determination. It's based, I think, on justice and democracy. And those, I think, are solid founding principles. And you can see them sort of underlying the Declaration in the context, right? Because the colonists are concerned that they're not represented and they feel that they have legitimate moral complaints. Um, But that's not the political theory of the Declaration. And the closest you get, I think, to a founding document, you know, other than the Constitution, which does give us principles of democracy and justice in Reconstruction, um, is the Gettysburg Address, where Lincoln says, new birth of freedom, and he's talking about morality and justice there. And he says, government of the people, by the people, for the people, and he's talking about democracy. And I think that's when you get those articulated as the principles that the American political regime is going to be based on going forward. And uh, Kim rightly highlights in the tradition of Bruce Ackerman that there are procedural questions that can be raised about how the 14th Amendment was ratified I have highlighted those issues as well. I'm glad that we actually talk about them rather than sweeping them under the rug. And for that, we do owe a debt to my friend, teacher Bruce Ackerman, for for highlighting all that. That said, I think Bruce is basically all wrong. And I'm not sure when exactly where Kim is, but, but he's talking about democracy. Here's the big point. Some of these pre-existing Southern white governments, most of them were swept away, disregarded in the process of ratifying the 14th Amendment, especially. And they were swept away because they weren't democratic, because they weren't letting black people vote. 
And so they really, in technical constitutional parlance, they, these states did not have proper Republican forms of government under Article 4. And this clause of the Constitution that had not really been very much invoked and applied and appealed to before the Civil War becomes hugely important. Charles Sumner calls it the sleeping giant of the Constitution, this Republican government clause that has reawakened. And based on this one clause of the Constitution, which actually is a pretty central idea, states should have Republican forms of government, very analogous to what we would call a democratic government, government of the people, by the people, for the people. And Southern states don't have that. They are, are excluding black folk. And in South Carolina, black people are an absolute majority of the population and not of, and not just of the population. Here's a really interesting irony of the free population, because now we've gotten rid of slavery. It's one thing to not let slaves vote. Okay. How can they? They don't have legal contemplation, wills of their own. You don't have secret ballot. They just actually be obliged to, to vote according to what the master tells them. But once they're free, once the 13th Amendment has been adopted, how can you have a republic when more than half of the free people aren't allowed to vote? And in South Carolina, it's 60% black. The other end of the spectrum, um, Tennessee is, has the lowest percentage of, of black, but it's still a quarter of the population. And again, a quarter of the free population. It is true that some northern states don't let blacks vote. But in many of these northern states, you're talking about 1% of the population or 2%. And this is bad. And Sumner thinks it's very bad. He says 1% disfranchisement is very different than 60% disfranchisement. They also say, look, there's no free speech in the South. They shut down opposition speech, just like they do in communist China today. That's not true in the North. And they revolted against a duly elected government, you see, in the South. They didn't do that in the North. So... At least three reasons why we need to sweep these governments away because they're not letting black people vote. They don't really have free speech. They did take up arms against the duly elected government. They are, in a word, unrepublican regimes. And so we actually have to reconstruct them on a new and build the nation on a new foundation that is based on this clause of the Constitution that we kind of um, disregarded and we disregarded it at to our great disadvantage because the South was becoming in the 1840s and 50s increasingly unrepublican, increasingly actually hostile to free speech and free elections. And we kind of pretended that wasn't happening. That was a mistake. We now have to fix that. Okay. That's my account of reconstruction, Kim. Um, okay. Before, before, before well, Kim goes in, just, just, uh, Akio, you made a statement. How can you have a Republican form of government when half the people don't vote? Well, the women aren't voting, you know, so. And great, and I want to talk, that. I, and that was in the conversation too, so I'm glad you brought that up, so let, maybe we can talk about that as well. Yeah, so the, the question that I was going to ask, well, I have, I guess, three questions. One was, like, what about women? Uh, you know, doesn't this invalidate governments in the North because of, they deny women the right to vote? Two, isn't this only true of citizens? Um, and Congress has declared, right, in the Civil Rights Act that black people are citizens. Um, but does Congress actually have the power to do that? Uh, where does Congress get the power to declare that people are citizens of the states in which they reside, is my second question. And then my third is, if you go back to the founding era, what percentage of 
the free population in, say, Massachusetts is actually allowed to vote just to set sort of the baseline for what counts as a Republican form of government. So I'm so glad you asked all these questions. I promise you these are central to my books. And my friend Bruce Ackerman actually either um, misses some of the things or gets the facts wrong. That's a very strong statement, but, but you know, it still needs to be true. But in America's Constitution of Biography and in America's Unwritten Constitution, I go into all the facts and figures in great specificity and detail. So let's just talk about some of these issues. So one is the woman question. They're going to try to come up with an account of the word Republican government that makes sense, actually, of their history and experience. And given that no regime in the history of the world really had ever seen widespread women voting before, not ancient Athens, not Republican Rome, not Britain, not Switzerland. Um, um, there were a few widows who may have voted in New Jersey for a very brief time. But but so it's going to be slightly awkward to come up with a theory of Republican government in which no government has ever been Republic, including any of the ones um, at the founding. So now we're going to have to adjust it. Why is that Republican? And they sa- said because men virtually represent their daughters, wives, um, sisters, and so on. And at the time, only so, at, at the founding, women aren't saying otherwise. Abigail Adams isn't saying otherwise. By the 1860s, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton are beginning to, to say otherwise. One question, Kim, is what's the, what's the historical baseline? And, and we have to kind of tell her as, as sister, how is it the case that all the states were Republican governments in good standing in 1859-60, and they all were, and none of them let women vote? So how do we account for that? We have a theory of virtual representation, and they don't fight, and we have a theory that those who vote should fight, and those who fight should vote. So, uh, But I talk about some of that. And there are people who talk about women voting. You know who they are? They're the Democrats who are trolls, because they don't believe in women voting. They're just trying to you know, do a whataboutism. Now you say, Kim... Well, are blacks citizens? Well, even if they're not citizens, you see, they are residents. So here's my analogy, and it's like a conflict of laws analogy of a certain sort. It's one thing to basically say oh, there are all these people in the rest of the world, and um, and we don't count them in American elections because they're in India. They're in France. They're in Germany. They don't count. They're not part of America. But once they come and live here permanently, it's a little bit different to permanently exclude them, even if they want to be included. That's a slightly different thing. How does that connect to 1860s? Here's what the South says, because they say, you're saying we're unrepublican? WTF? We were Republican in 1860. What has changed? And here's that. It's, it's so interesting. They said, yes, it's one thing to disenfranchise slaves. But now those slaves have become free and, you know, it's unrepublican, dis- disfranchised free people. And the analogy is, yes, one thing where well, you keep the rest of the world from coming to America. But if they come, you can't like permanently disfranchise them and still call yourself a republic. OK. And then they say the South says, well, you don't let all your black people vote. And they say, yeah, but it's a small percentage and, and it's a big percentage for you. And they say, what about women? These are just the moves. And I promise you, I talk about all of them. Now, the third question you asked, what percentage? We're going to have to draw a line somewhere. N- nothing's ever going to be perfect. Um, so do I think that FDR is different than Hitler? Yes, I do. But everything's on a continuum. Okay. So we have a continuum here. No, no one's perfect. 
it is true that no regime at the founding disfranchised more than a quarter of its free population. So that turns out to be a very convenient fact for the Reconstruction Republicans, because all the states of the former Confederacy are now, now that everyone is free, disfranchising more than a quarter of their free population, and no state had done that at the time. Now, states had massive disfranchisement of slaves, okay? So it's, again, to repeat, it's one thing to not let slaves count, it's a very different thing to not let free people count in, in, your, in your voting systems. So all of these, these are just the detailed debates that uh, play out in the 39th Congress, because these guys are actually serious people, talking about the genuinely deep uh, issues. And truthfully, Bruce missed some of that um, and, and, and was way too quick to condemn these folks. And I actually am admiring. I'm not a fan at all. I said I hate. That's a very strong word. People like Jeff Davis and Alexander Stevens, I really admire. They're not perfect, but but Charles Sumner and John Bingham, these guys are pretty serious constitutional lawyers and who are debating, Kim, just the questions that you teed up and, and Andy, that you teed up, including what about women? Your response to that, Kim? I kind of feel like we're getting to more agreement, which, which I sort of like. So the point that everything is a continuum, um, I'm not trying to say I'm giving you a radical reinterpretation and it's an open and shut case, black and white, I'm right. I'm saying, look back at the history, things are more complicated than we realize. And we tell ourselves this story, if you ask the ordinary person, I think, how was the 14th Amendment ratified? Are there any strange things that happened? They'll say, of course not. 14th Amendment is uncontrovertibly part of our constitution. Therefore, the ratification must have been totally normal and above board. And it, and it wasn't totally normal at all. And, and Kim, right. you know that, and I know that, and we both know that in part because Bruce Ackerman rubbed our noses in it, and good for him, even if, I, you know, I have a slightly different, you know, response then to all that. Yes, we all Americans should know that. Yes, and so there are, I think, important and plausible arguments on both sides about the legality, right? And we should think more about this as a moment where extraordinary things are happening. And maybe that should change our perspective on the history and change the way we think about um, where our values come from. And then I love what you're saying about, you know, the, the Reconstruction Congress and how Sumner and Bingham and Jacob Howard and people like that are admirable, because that's kind of my whole thesis. Those are our heroes. Yes. And like, who are they better than? Of course, they're better than Jefferson Davis. Um, but I'm saying they're also better than Thomas Jefferson. And I yes. think that actually you agree with that. Yes. Um, and totally. you're saying, on the other hand, you know, John Adams is great. Um, and he's, sure, he's, he's actually, uh, he's like very erratic. He's, he's not great. His, you know, he runs with um, his vice presidential running mates twice are Pinckney's from South Carolina. Um, you know, his son is not going to become old man eloquent against slavery until the very end. And his vice president was a guy from South Carolina named Calhoun. So, no, they're not perfect. And they're creatures of our time. And you know what? We're not perfect. And, oh, history is to look back on us. And and uh, I, I, I tremble. Well, um, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I get what you're saying, that we that we want to point to the Reconstruction as a shining moment. And there absolutely is agreement with everyone on this podcast, I know, about that, on, on that point. But you do say that it matters that the 14th Amendment was, in your view, 
ratified in, in, you know, not just different way, but, you know, a, a extra constitutional, you know, a, well, because you say that this, that they didn't do it um, just because it was procedurally all right, but they actually, now the United States is founded on justice, you know, whereas before it was not, um, that's what you say. And uh, yes. so, so you actually make, make uh, lemonade out of your contention that the 14th Amendment, you know, that this actually bolsters your point. But I think... Well, so here's what I'm saying. Like, I think 1866 is a moment like 1776 or 1787 or 1861 where you can make legal arguments on either side and it's not really clear to me that there's a clear answer. Um, but what I'm saying is we should think about this as a moment of revolutionary change. And we should think about this as the creation of a new political order that's radically different from what came before. And I don't really care if it's technically legal or not under the 1787 Constitution because I don't feel attached to the 1787 Constitution. I feel a sense of attachment to the 1868 Constitution going forward. And the point that I want to make, setting aside the technical legality, is I do think whether Congress had the power to do this or not, Congress destroyed the Confederate states and made new states. So that's one of the things that I say in the book. And then you've got, it's almost like 1787, you've got states with their new constitutions, right? New states ratifying a new constitution, creating a new nation. And like, is that objectively right? Is everyone else objectively wrong? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying we can think about America that way and it's better to think about America that way. Well, I think that to celebrate the Reconstruction is a wonderful thing. I think that uh, one person that I think would really have a lot of problems with what you're saying would be Abraham Lincoln, who believed, you know, strongly that... Maybe. Well, he believed, he, he acted as if he cared that he behave in accordance with the law, in accordance with the Constitution, to the degree that it was possible. We can talk about habeas corpus, but, you know, but I think that, uh, you know... In general, he took great pains to to conform with the Constitution. He he would care how the debate came out. Now he wasn't around for the Fourteenth Amendment, but he would care how that debate came out. He would care how that secession was illegal. There's a reason he never talked about the Confederacy as a as an actual you know independent nation. I mean, you know, he cared about these formalities. I personally care about them too. And because I and be, and and I actually buy on this one, you know, Akil's arguments. And that matters to me because I will continue to celebrate the Declaration. I will continue to celebrate America as a, as a nation that has, continue, that has continually attempted to, to realize this vision. And, and th so then, where does this bring us? It brings us to all men are created equal. But here's, here's Kim's biggest point that I do agree with, um, even if we disagree. He says, okay, Kim is a law professor, and so am I, and we believe in law. But Kim is saying, law is important, but it's not the only thing. There's justice. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it would be happy if everything that happened was um, legally um, and legalistically perfect. Um, but Kim's saying, even if that weren't true, he would still celebrate um, Reconstruction because it was just, mm -hmm. in, in in, 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 in big and profound and inspiring ways. And I agree with that. 
Um, I'm with you, Andy, in, in the, 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 the one refinement. Many of the people who achieved this, um, these acts of justice were lawyers who were legalists to an important extent. And even if they didn't get everything perfectly right, tried often to come very close because law was important to them. Um, because justice, law without justice is inadequate, but pure justice without any sense of, of legalism can spiral out of control. Uh, uh, Sir Thomas More, a man for all seasons. So Lincoln was a lawyer who deeply believed in law. And I, and I'm, and I'm not sure that that's quite the picture that Noah Feldman paints, um, in his new book. And, and Bingham was very much a legalist and Charles Sumner actually was law trained. So, um, and I think we do them a slight injustice if we don't even acknowledge that they were really taking law very seriously and trying to do justice within a, a generally legal framework. But when you're, I think, when you're trying to put a country back together again after a civil war that should never have happened in the first place that was itself profoundly illegal you know sometimes certain things are legal that otherwise wouldn't be because they're remedies for antecedent Ill- illegality of a certain sort and that's like okay you know like i'm breaching the contract because you breached it first and you didn't paint my fence so i'm not going to pay you ten thousand dollars or whatever paint paint the house so andy what you are saying which is true is people like Lincoln cared passionately about justice, but they were also very much people of law. Uh, many of the, the great Reconstruction figures are care intensely about legal rectitude, even if they understand that in the end, justice, you know, must be um, a pole star. So some of this, again, you know, comes down to the, the moral content, the moral vacuousness of the Declaration of Independence. And, and some of that hangs on this, uh, this question of all men are created equal. What does that mean? And Kim has pointed to this article by Pauline Mayer about this. And now uh, Akil, I know, went back and, and looked at the article. So now let's have a, a brief discussion about that article and, and how it uh, might impact on this contention. I want to make two points, one about Pauline Mayer and whether the declaration is just about no divine right of kings or more can be read more broadly from day one. And then to return full circle to what we began with, just a little bit more about how early states inspired in part by not so much Thomas Jefferson, but other people who were there in the Declaration of Independence, like Ben Franklin and John Adams have early state constitutions from the beginning that have phrases like all men are created equal and understand those phrases to be completely inconsistent with slavery. So here's the paragraph that, because I had forgotten that Pauline Mayer had written this piece. It's in the law journal. She was a great historian, uh, student of Bernard Balin's, contemporary of Gordon Wood, who's been on this podcast. It's a piece that Kim mentioned in uh, our last conversation called The Strange History of, quote, All Men Are Created Equal. And this is a piece in the Washington and Lee Law Review from 1999. So she's an historian and she's giving a lecture actually in a law school all about uh, the Declaration of Independence and this one sentence in it. And 
Kim said, well, you know, the key to all men are created equal is just no one is born a king. So we can choose to have kings for for various reasons, but not because of divine right, but because parliament chooses for various reasons to designate certain people as monarchs or something. And Pauline does say that, but she actually, I think, goes a little bit, um, she says a little bit more, and, and Kim's view may be a little bit different than Pauline's, but because Kim had mentioned this piece, I went back and took a look at it. Here's the paragraph that I'd like to read. What did it mean to say all men were, quote, created equal, unquote, in 1776? Americans of 1776, we must note, understood equality as a characteristic of their new republic that had a wide range of possible implications. Equal liberty, for example, and equal opportunity, equal access to office and equal voting power. But the assertion that men were, quote, created, unquote, or born, quote, unquote, equal, meant that all men were originally free of subjection. And so were on the same level because nobody had a title from God or nature to rule others. All legitimate authority, okay, so that's what Kim was saying before, and back to Pauline. All legitimate authority, as the Declaration of Independence went on to say, so now additional sentences, all legitimate authority was founded upon consent. The original understanding is clear in text composed without the requirement of brevity that shapes uh, the draft Declaration of Independence. Mason, for example, George Mason from Virginia, for example, said, said, uh, men were born, quote, equally free and independent, unquote. Earlier in Common Sense, Thomas Paine said that, quote, all men being originally equals, no one by birth could have a right to set up his own family in perpetual preference to all others forever, unquote. Coupling a statement of original equality with a rejection of hereditary authority. Now here are the key sentences of Pauline's. The inconsistency between that idea and the institution of slavery was hard to deny. A slave status was inherited, and consent had nothing to do with the authority of masters. So Pauline is saying in this piece, as I read her, that really from the beginning, people like Tom Paine, maybe not Thomas Jefferson in every respect, are reading this language to be completely inconsistent with slavery. Not just created equal, but that their inherent rights, you know, um, at creation and, um, and that governments exist to secure rights and governments are really only legitimate if they, they derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And when you add all of those things together, created equal, inalienable rights, of life, liberty, pursuit, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Governments are created to secure these rights. They have their power, their just powers only from the consent of the governed. She's saying, oh, you add all that together. It, it sure looks, you know, pretty straightforwardly as a condemnation of slavery, which Thomas Jefferson may or may not have fully understood. But Ben Franklin did and John Adams did and Tom Paine did from day one. Yeah. So what I say about that, and I do, I quote that very passage in the book, um, is really that Pauline Mayweather is a great historian, but this is more of a philosophical question. So if you take Locke's theory, which is what George Mason does, and it's what Jefferson does, what does that mean about slavery? And the answer is, it is wrong, according to this theory, to enslave insiders. So categorically, that's right. 
if you've taken people and they've formed a social compact, the government is formed to secure their rights, and the Massachusetts Constitution says that explicitly, actually, to secure the rights of the people who form it. You cannot enslave those insiders. Um, and you need to protect their natural rights. So natural rights and legal rights, this is a very important distinction, are never going to be coextensive because you surrender some natural rights when you enter into a state of society, but you can't sort of arbitrarily take away the natural rights of the insiders. Now, what about outsiders? That's a totally different question. So the argument of the Declaration, the idea that all men are created equal, tells you slavery is not an example of legitimate political authority. But no one thought it was. And the question that you have to ask if you want to go on to decide whether slavery is right or wrong or permissible or not is, is slavery justified? And that's an answer where people had different arguments. And the Declaration simply doesn't enter into that argument. I mean, so here's you, you, make the argument, you make the argument in the book that, well, you know, you're bringing the slaves from outside. They're not, they're, they're not you know, in, engaged in, you know, consent of the government at the first, in the first place. But what? But then you have they have children, you know, in when they, you know, that that are born equal, and now they're insiders. They're born in America. Yeah, so, right. So, so there are a lot of very important distinctions going on here, and I think maybe contrary to a kill, that Jefferson does know what he's doing, um, and that people understand these distinctions. So Mason's draft says men are born equally free and independent, and someone doesn't like that. So they're in Virginia, they're writing a document that has got to be consistent with slavery because they're very committed to slavery. So they change it, they take out born. They say all men are by nature equally free and independent. And then they put in language about entering into a state of society to try to make clear that they're distinguishing between the state of nature and the state of society, and they're happy with that, right? They think they've done enough to write a document that is clearly consistent with slavery. And Jefferson quite notably, I think, doesn't say born. So if you say all men are born equal, it sounds like you're talking about real people in the state of Virginia. If you say all men are created equal, you're talking about hypothetical people in the state of nature. And I think he does that very deliberately in the Declaration of Independence. So this is a, maybe a perfect segue to um, uh, the preface to my uh, book in progress, uh, The Words That Made Us Equal. If, um, with your permission, I can just um, share about a page or so of this preface. And I didn't write it as a refutation of Kim. This is what I was writing, but it turns out to be very much in conversation um, with what Kim just said. I like conversation better than refutation. I, I, do, I, I thought you would, Kim. So, so here, here's what I say. The Declaration's, uh, uh, quote, all men are created equal phrase was neither the unique brainchild nor the exclusive trademark of the inconstant, loose-minded, hypocritical, and lifelong slaveholder Thomas Jefferson. More mischief and confusion in American—excuse me, much mischief and confusion in American history and American scholarship has resulted from tying the Declaration too tightly to this one man. In the three-week run-up to July 4th, 1776, Pennsylvania's Benjamin Franklin and Massachusetts's John Adams were also essential members of the Declaration's five-man drafting committee alongside Virginia's Jefferson. Led by these two Northern fathers and by other Northern visionaries acting quite independently of Jefferson, anti-slavery and egalitarian reformers across much of the continent 
enthusiastically echoed and elaborated the Declaration's All Men Are Created Equal Clause, and did so from the earliest days of the new nation's existence, especially while crafting abolitionist state constitutions of various sorts. So now I'm going to give you the state constitutions, and they start right in the founding era. So this is like back to the 1619 conversation. The 1780 Massachusetts Constitution, drafted under Adams' watchful eye, proclaimed that, quote, all men are born free and equal, unquote. Um, Massachusetts judges and juries promptly used this language to put an immediate end to slavery in that jurisdiction. And then I say, oh, there's similar um, uh, uh, language in the free soil constitutions of, of Iowa in the 1840s and 50s and Indiana. Um, and I talk about New York. OK, so that's one formulation, kind of born free and equal. Other pre-Gettysburg state constitutions proclaim that, quote, all men are born equally free and independent. This language appeared most prominently in Pennsylvania's Constitution of 1776, drafted in the summer of that year while the ink on the Parchment Declaration was still wet by a state uh, convention presided over by the legendary Franklin. In 1780, Pennsylvania legislature built on Franklin's foundation by enacting legislation phasing out slavery entirely, albeit gradually. And then I show you six other constitutions that repeat that language, um, six other states that repeat that language verbatim, and they're all free soil states. Vermont in 17, beginning in 1777, New Hampshire in 1784, Ohio in 1802, Indiana 1816, Illinois 1818, Maine 1820, Wisconsin 1840s, Kansas later on. Then I say, oh, and here's this other set of, of states that are doing roughly similar things. That's actually New Jersey and California. California and Ohio. I give you a language from Rhode Island statute that, that does much the same thing. So pulling it all together in sum, long before Lincoln reached Gettysburg with his, you know, famous claim about what the nation is, is dedicated to more than three quarters of the free states of the new nation in their organic constitutions and, and or abolitionist legislation harmonized with the declarations, all men are created equal clause um, and its adjacent language. So, so from the beginning, there are people reading things in a Tom Paine-like way. And then I have an end note where I say, Virginia is not one of them. Virginia actually has to qualify the language and it talks about social compact. And so does Kentucky. And so does Texas. And actually, some of them talk about free men entering into a social contract. So if you just say all men are, are born or created equal, that is going to push you toward the Tom Paine thing. And Virginians understand that. And so they put in some other Weasley language. But so from the beginning, there seems to be agreement in the Declaration of Independence, but there isn't quite because the Northerners are reading it one way and the Virginians are reading it, for example, a different way. Yeah, I, I don't know how how much you want to hang your head on the difference between born and created. I mean, do you have any source? I think it's very important. Do you have a, a source where uh, on that where someone is is uh, making a big deal about that early on, or they're, they're debating it, or anything like that, or they're crossing well, it you, out? Or you can look at what happens. So you can look at where they say born and what the consequence of that is. And Massachusetts is a big example of that. So in Massachusetts, they say born. And that language is relied on to abolish slavery. So, so on um, you know, Vermont, on, they say on, born. Yeah, on that. Anti-slavery states say born. And the change that the drafters of the Virginia Declaration of Rights made to Mason's language was they took out born. So, so um, I mentioned that here. I may have a slightly different take, but only slightly. Um, I think 
a key word in the 14th Amendment. The first sentence is born. All persons born in the United States are, are born sort of full and equal citizens. They're born equal under the flag. So, so I think born isn't a very interesting idea. Um, and born versus created, people haven't been talking about it in the context of abortion, but I could imagine that that would become a bigger part of the, the discourse. I see three things as uh, on the same family, born, created, and natural from the French naître, which it means to be born in, in, in French. I see those as kind of clustering together. There might be some um, subtle distinctions, but they are all to be distinguished from explicit language of a social compact, um, which is Virginia and Kentucky and Texas, which are all slave jurisdictions. So I don't um, have a huge, uh, I don't say there's a huge difference among born, natural, and created, but I do think, because uh, I think those kind of cluster together, but I think they're all different from language of social compact, which is to repeat uh, the, the Southern interpretation of Virginia, um, Virginia 1776, Kentucky in 1792, Texas in the 1840s, um, and Texas even, some of them, and, and Kentucky later, will not just say men when they enter a social compact, they'll say freemen when they enter a social compact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this sort of fits beautifully with what I want to say, like my whole takeaway. So I think Akhil does a masterful job of describing the context and the history there. And the difference that I have is I don't see these free state pro-liberty, anti-slavery constitutions coming from the Declaration. What I would say is happening is there's enlightenment social contract theory out there, and that's influencing the whole environment. And, you know, Locke says that men are by nature free, equal, and independent, and no one can be subjected to the political power of another without his own consent. And you can take that theory and you can make an anti-slavery argument. Or you can take that theory and you can make an argument about the organization of society that is consistent with slavery. And you can see that very clearly. Both those things are happening in colonial America because Virginia is taking it in a direction that is consistent with slavery. Massachusetts is taking it in an anti-slavery direction. And you've got sort of these two versions. There's the Virginia version of the founding and there's the Massachusetts version of the founding. And then the question is, which is America? And I think the right answer is, America is a they and not an it, which is what Akil says. And, and I even bring three in because, again, if we just talk about Jefferson, it seems as if that's going to take us down one path. But if we understand alongside Jefferson from day one, you've got Franklin from Pennsylvania and Adams from Massachusetts. And literally, they are use, putting words in their own home state constitutions in, in Pennsylvania that very same month. Or um, in a state convention presided over by Franklin, they're not so much barring from the Declaration. The Declaration, and they are all barring from the same common sources, the tap root. The Declaration isn't yet iconic. But we Americans today, if we talk about the Declaration, are making a mistake if we just think it's Thomas Jefferson's and not equally Ben Franklin's and John Adams. So and and that's up. relevant to 1619. Sure. So I'll yeah, take so I mean, like the... The Declaration, too, is a they. I think you could say that. Yes. Um, But then the question that I think we need to ask is, if you're trying to get a sense of it as a whole, and if you're trying to get a sense of founding America as a whole, is it more Massachusetts or is it more Virginia? And I guess 
one way of expressing my big point is with the revolution, with the Constitution, with the Declaration, we like to think it's Massachusetts, but it's much more Virginia. Mm -hmm. And three of our first four presidents are slaveholders from Virginia. One of them, right, is from Massachusetts. Yes. But if you're looking at the balance of power in founding America, if you're looking at the dominant ideology, if you're looking at the moments where America speaks with one voice, like the Declaration, like the Treaty of Paris, where they say, don't take our property, referring to people that the British have freed. Yes. Um, it's much more Virginia than we think. Well, and it's not the only thing that they say. And and in terms of the who's the president, I mean, look, Je- you know, they called they called Jefferson Negro president because, you know, if if the uh, but for the three fifths clause, it would would have been Adams. You know, so uh, but, but that it's, it's yes, pro-slavery. Exactly. Right? Right? No, 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 pro-slavery. No, I understand, yeah. but but in terms yeah. of but now we're talking about the people. But, right? but, but, uh, one, so, one thing that I do one thing that I do say even on that is we have to be wary. Finally, Kim, and I think that we're going to we're coming to the end here of treating Virginia in 1787 as the same Virginia that ends up seceding in 1861. Virginia itself was actually, it could have gone in a different direction. Part of Virginia is Kentucky, for example, which doesn't secede. Another part of Virginia is West Virginia, which actually breaks away. As late as the 1830s, Virginians came close to actually following their um, northern counterparts and and beginning on a path of of gradual abolition. The great abolitionist Granville Sharp, British abolitionist, is given an honorary degree in Virginia. Virginia could have gone the other way, and some people were betting that it would actually eventually follow New York and Pennsylvania toward gradual abolition. Didn't quite happen that way, but, but Virginia is very different than South Carolina. So, oh, now... Oh, we got the Massachusetts people, and they're slightly different than Pennsylvania people because the Puritans are different than the Quakers. New Yorkers are their own different thing, commercial Dutch. Virginians are different from the South Carolinas. America is not actually an it. Okay, well, I think we're going to wrap up, but I I, uh, I think the fact that we're still going at it strong is, uh, is, is evidence of just how provocative the book, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story, uh, by Kermit Roosevelt is uh, is well worth your time, and uh, I'm going to take a little credit here because the first thing I said in the first episode that we had was that you hang your hat quite a lot on Jefferson being the author of the Declaration, and that turns out I think to be a, to be an important uh, question that we that uh, Keel brought up. So anyway, thank and I you. didn't I did I did not understand that a month ago, and you've helped me in my own mind see how important that that question turns out to be. So thank you, Kim. Thank you. Okay, and I, I think that uh, the uh, the other lesson we've taken from this is that we'll need to have Kim, Ro- Kim Roosevelt back on at some point in the future because of this fascinating, these fascinating conversations that have been provoked. We, we, we were nice enough. We, you know, we roughed you up a little bit, but, <laughs> you know, but with a smile. <laughs> And, and 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 you and you held your ground. So well, I was trying to I was trying to be more combative this time. This is this is fine. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>